You're listening to the Art Problems Podcast, episode 45. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is a podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And on today's podcast, we're talking about art world taboos and when it's okay to break them. These are all the things that you're not supposed to do, but often want to do anyway. I'm going to break down the taboo, why it exists, and when it's okay to just say no and do it anyway. And before we start, I wanted to frame this discussion by reporting that I posed this question to Instagram followers a couple weeks ago, and some of the responses that came back were more about injustices and widespread exploitive practices than about, say, the subject of this podcast, which is the things that you don't do because of convention, but sometimes probably should. For example, one artist complained about tenure track positions that require an insane amount to apply, but don't even list the salary range. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up actually doesn't have much to do with the podcast at all, but rather publicly articulating the goals of the network membership for mid-career artists, because as the membership expands, I see our work going well beyond simply tooling artists with the skills to help them build their careers, but to advocate on their behalf and to help correct structural injustices. Now, I, you know, I want to be completely clear here when I'm not at the point where I can change university policy, but I have been putting out feelers to figure out where our advocacy efforts might be best spent so that we can have the impact that we want. And for the second year running, Workshop has donated money to WAGE, which is an organization that sets standards for artistic payment in the nonprofit sector, and Tiger Strikes Asteroids, a national artist-run collective. In my estimation, the biggest problem the art industry faces, and artists specifically, is that there are very few paths to a sustainable career. And so in short, what I mean by that is that you don't get paid enough and there are few, if any, protections for artists who run small businesses. And that's something that I very much want to change. So with all that said, I want to return to the theme of art world taboos. The problem a follower expressed to me over Instagram that sparked this podcast is the unwritten rule that artists should not curate themselves into the spaces they run. And I just want to be clear here that this moray exists for a reason. Curating yourself into shows within spaces that you run gives the appearance of a vanity gallery. And the reason that it gives that impression is that this is literally the common definition of a vanity gallery. It exists to promote the work of the owner, which often isn't sellable without the owner. There's also this secondary concern that you're not a disinterested party. So the idea being here that the group show that you included yourself in might not exist at all without your work, which then sullies the purity of whatever show concept you have. In my opinion, this latter concern is fairly minor. No one does anything for entirely selfless reasons, and the motivations are transparent. So It's different, for example, if you're a writer and don't disclose that you're also running an art fair because the audience will never know if the review choices the writer has made have been influenced by an interest in securing a gallery for that particular fair. 
However, if you're an artist who's curated yourself into a group show, you're likely putting a lot of your own money into the work. The payback is usually pretty thin. And the reason you're curating that particular show usually has a very specific tie to your own practice. So it's very transparent why you're putting the show together in the first place. So who cares if you include yourself in the show? You might as well get some direct benefits from it. So that's my opinion on that. But if you're running a space and you give yourself a solo show, well, you know, there's a bit more context to consider. So I wanted to go over that there. Now, the first is let's say you're an artist influencer renting a pop-up space for your own solo show. This is pretty standard. You might as well do it because any financial arrangement where a gallery takes 50% of your profit is going to be a big hit for you financially. And you can already make sales without the gallery. So you don't even need the gallery. And second of all, here within the artist influencer section that we're talking about, the vast majority of curators aren't going to come across your work organically because they're working in smaller artistic networks where influencer artistic production either goes unseen or is shunned. So unless you broaden your circles, and honestly, shows in gallery-dense districts isn't a bad way to do that. That lack of visibility within the community of curators and galleries is likely to remain the same. So the second professional combo is that you're an artist gallery owner running a for-profit space. And the situation here is a little less clear. One issue is that you have to sell your own work. And if you're not used to that, it might be awkward. Another is that too many solo shows with your own work will begin to read as a vanity space, even if that's not the case. So you want to be careful about the context, right? So a pop-up space is better than a brick and mortar because it's temporary and site-specific. So you're building a very specific context for your work. A summer show, for example, or a specifically timed show relating to the work that you're doing can help remove the veneer of self-serving motivations. But also, if you've run the gallery for years and you want to do a solo show of your own work, just do it and time it for when you think the business can make the most money. At the end of the day, you're running a business. And if you think that you can make the most money for your business by taking a prime slot and selling your work, then trust your instincts. You're supporting the business and you're going to be supporting other artists in the process. You know your collectors better than anyone else and you are in control of the context that you shape for yourself. So that's your permission to go ahead and do that. If you've done the research and you think you can provide the kind of context that's necessary. So the third and final professional designation here might be is if you are an artist gallery owner running a nonprofit space or a space that operates out of your own pocket and does not make money. And in that case, the judgment call is really up to you. But my feeling is that if you're doing a lot of work for free, why not use the space for a solo show if you want it? I'm not condoning doing it every year, but I think some amount of showing your work is okay. Now, of course, I want to say here 
that there are 101 variations on all of this. You could be an artist that dedicates a small room for your work at all times. You could decide that you don't want to wade into the ethics of showing your work at all. The point here isn't so much that there's one rule to live by, but rather that by being sensitive to your context and messaging, that solves most of your questions. And if you're doing a lot of work for others, I just want to give you permission to do something for yourself. Probably the most common issue I see amongst artists that I work with is that you forget to put yourself into the equation. And that, by the way, is totally natural. Because for most self-organized exhibition opportunities, you have to self-fund and remove the expectation of receiving payback to even launch the event. But it shouldn't be that way forever, or you're going to burn out and begrudge others. And at some point, you have to put yourself back into the equation. And I think that's the hard part, right? It's so hard to remember to do when so much falls apart, when you start asking for money or space that's not available. But the fact is, is that we need to remember that we need these things to run our studios. So the next taboo I want to talk about in the art world is emailing dealers that you haven't met personally. And in fact, this is such doctrine that the gallery PPOW issued a warning in the paper monument publication, I Like Your Work, Art and Etiquette, that which was specifically about art etiquette, about how you were never supposed to do this. Now, I want to add a little bit of context here, because what this taboo really means is don't email someone and ask them for something without doing any research about who they are and what they show and why they might give a shit about anything you do. Blind emails often don't work, but a very small part of that is because we don't trust the people that we don't know, right? If you write an email and you've done enough research to know that you're a perfect fit for whatever the gallery shows, or at least a very good fit, right? Not Almost anything is not perfect, but you're a very good fit. The recipient is often really glad to hear from you. And I want to say here that 99% of the high-profile people I've worked with, which includes Hito Style, John Baldessari, Seth Price, Claire Evans, these were all the result of blind emails. And my key to success was never relying on the fact that somebody might know me because at that stage in their career, often they don't, but that what I was doing was interesting enough and specific enough to what they did that it would scratch an intellectual itch. And it would provide them an opportunity to participate in something they thought was interesting and they wouldn't have an opportunity to participate in otherwise. So I worked on explaining why I thought they were a really good fit for what I was thinking about, developing the right support material. So I knew I'd done everything I could to show them I was serious and what they would be getting out of this, right? Usually this involved developing a web page and mentioning my accomplishments in the email so they knew what the benefits were for them. And that's what you're doing when you're writing one of those emails to galleries. Now, I mentioned this too because the most common goal that I see artists set when they join Network is to secure a solo show. 
And the most common lesson that I see artists learn when they join is that it will take them about six months to a year to be ready to show their work to a gallerist. And I want to add here a really common related anxiety amongst artists on Instagram or any social media, which is to DM or not to DM the gallerist who starts following you. Now, there's no right answer to this because everyone has their preferences. But in my opinion, unless the profile specifically says no blind DMs, if a gallerist follows you, there's no harm in sending the DM, introducing yourself and letting them know that you're a fan of what they do. If they get upset about that, they shouldn't be on Instagram in the first place. Anyway, the taboo of emailing gallerists you don't know needs to be replaced with the understanding that emailing a gallery that is in no way aligned with your work is simply spamming them. And that's what the taboo is really about. That's the core objection, not anything else. And remember, without your art, they don't have the revenue they need for the gallery. They have to have something to sell. So they need you. The next art world taboo I want to talk about is the participation in pay-to-play shows. Pay-to-play refers to the participation in shows where there is a fee to exhibit. Now, the reason that this is a taboo is that it's not a gallery agreement at all. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding here about what this arrangement is in terms of business. In a gallery agreement, the gallery works on your behalf to sell the work, takes a commission, pays the rent, promo costs, all the rest. And these costs are very significant. So that's why they take a 50% commission. Pay to play is not a gallery agreement at all. It's a real estate agreement that amounts to little more than a sublease. You pay the gallery for space, you do the promotion, you pay them extra for their contacts, which will be like if they give them to you at all, usually those contacts are going to be garbage because they're not familiar with your work and you get to sell the work on your own because the gallery has no incentive to do that. Some galleries also ask for a commission on your sales. So there's all sorts of ways that this is kind of a bum agreement for you. Now, for the most part, this stuff is pretty straightforward. Basically, you shouldn't enter into agreement like this if you want gallery representation. But of course, there's all sorts of gray area here, right? So there are people who rent a booth at an art fair and then charge the artists for participation. There are people who charge artists for the numbers of works they include in a show. There are people who charge for online exhibitions. And then, of course, there are memberships, some of which are long established, like, say, AIR Gallery in New York and run ethically, and others where there's a bit more murkiness to the water. And finally, there's also variation in consignments in general. So galleries should pay for shipping. That's generally the standard, but they don't always. Sometimes they pay for shipping, but not the grading, which depending on the art can be very expensive. And there's no playbook for this, but I do recommend referring to Art Slash Work by Jonathan Melber and Heather Bundari Darcy, which spells out a lot of these rules. If you don't have that book, I'll leave it in the show notes. I think it's indispensable. But here are my thoughts on the matter. So number one, avoid pure play to play. It doesn't matter if the venue is at a fair, an online or traditional gallery space. It's the same profit model and it is exploitive to artists. 
And I've seen good artists, great artists consider this in down moments and get confused by the various venues that exist within this ecosystem just because they just really want something to happen. And if that's you, I just want you to know that you don't need this. You will find another opportunity and participating in something like this will make it more difficult. So just avoid it. Just just say no. So number two, always ask your friends what they know about the venues. So your network is your biggest asset when it comes to establishing what you want to show, where you want to show, and who you want to work with. So let's say you're unsure about a membership gallery or one of these weird spaces that seems kind of pay to play, but not quite. Talk to the people who are participating in that and find out whether it's a good match for you. And finally, try to remember that what a gallery offers doesn't have to be what you take. If they're not offering crating, ask them if they will. If they're asking you to foot the framing costs, ask them if there's room for negotiation. Maybe they can foot 50%, right? It's a conversation, not an affront. And the more transparent you are about your costs and what you need, the easier it will be for the gallery to respond to those needs. It doesn't mean that they're always going to be able to meet them, but they have to know what they are in order to even try. So in this case, I'm really just encouraging you to be as transparent as possible with your gallery so that they know what your goals are. Now, I have a couple of taboos I want to close off with, which are taboos that have changed or are starting to change. So the first taboo, which is no longer a taboo, is picturing yourself with your work, which 30 years ago would have been an absolute no-no. There was this idea that the work needed to support itself and without the help of an artist or any other person. So ads, let's say in art form or other magazines were often just text or all image, but the text was like small print below the ad. And they almost never included images of the artist. Now I would say there isn't an artist that I don't tell to add their picture to their website if it's not already there because it adds depth to the presentation of the work. But I like to mention this because it's important to remember that everything we're talking about here is just convention, which means that it's subject to change, which means that all of this is mutable. So nothing here, nothing that we're talking about that is an absolute don't ever do this is really that way. Now, I suspect part of the reason an artist was rarely included in images was the cost of producing images in the first place. Because 30 years ago, we didn't have digital cameras. When that's a factor, maybe you just focus on the art because it's easier to document and you need fewer pictures. Now that we have unlimited images and Instagram where people want to see your face, the artist's image really needs to be everywhere. So that's something that's changed. And finally, the last taboo I want to talk about is the stigma around professional development. And I think this is something that's changing too. But if you believe that it's your art and only your art that gets you shows, then why would you need professional development? And that was the belief, right? There was a belief in the purity of the image. And I think in some ways I miss those times, even though they seem a little naive to me now. Sometimes I wish I could get back the belief in that purity of art. 
But the fact is, is that you need a lot of communication materials to get your work out there, at least now. And that's why Network, my membership for mid-career artists exists. All right. Tune in next week because I have some special programming lined up for you and I will see you online. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.